We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. I don't know if you got the chance last week. You can catch it later, you know, on, on demand somewhere if you haven't seen it yet. But there was a piece on the Fifth Estate about Buffy St. Marie, the longtime Indigenous st- singer, star, folk singer. Well, at least we thought she was Indigenous. We may still. I don't know. The, the, the piece on the Fifth Estate, boy, it, uh, it certainly threw questions into this, though. What, what it suggests, what it found, the evidence that it brought forward is that Buffy St. Marie... Rather than being born in Saskatchewan on a reserve was born in Massachusetts and her name was Beverly Santa Maria. And according to this sort of became Buffy St. Marie over time, eventually was adopted by an indigenous family. But what does all this mean and what do indigenous people, what do we, what does anybody do with this if the story that has been portrayed for so many years is not accurate. Daryl J. McLeod is an award-winning Cree author. He's got a great piece that's at the Toronto Star. You can also read it at thespec.com. I loved Buffy St. Marie. Now, like many Indigenous people, I feel betrayed by her. Daryl joins me. Daryl, how are you today? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Really appreciate you doing this and bringing the, I mean, I suspect that you're not the only person of Indigenous descent who is thinking similar things about this. Have you heard from others about the same thoughts? Oh, sure. I've heard, well, my circle of friends, uh, my close friends, and um, also there have been hundreds of posts on Facebook, on t- um, a bit on Twitter, Instagram. Um, and, you know, my article came out um, Saturday, I think it was, and uh, there's been a lot of response to it, too. One and, of the you know, people are posting podcasts and indigenous people are posting podcasts and um, writing more uh, op-ed columns and stuff like that. Yeah, there's a lot. One of the real hard challenges, let's jump into maybe one of the most complicated parts first and we can work our way backwards after that. But one of the most complicated things in this story seems to be, leaving aside for a second the the truth of everything, which we don't entirely know, is if somebody has lived their entire life to bring attention to indigenous people and indigenous affairs and indigenous issues, and, but they may not be indigenous. Is that something that should be applauded for putting that effort forward? Or is that something that we should be saying, stop that because it's not helping? Well, I know people who have, you know, definitely worked tirelessly and uh, devoted their whole careers to advancing indigenous issues who aren't indigenous. And and that's admirable. It's been great, but they haven't usually crossed the line in terms of claiming indigenous ancestry themselves in order to benefit from from that. Um, and that seems to be the case here, unfortunately. Um, you know, people are all, all over the map. Um, my friends and rel- relatives are all over the map on this. I mean, they're the normal stages of, of grief are denial, then anger, and then healing, right? And um, people are at very levels, various levels of, of that. Um, you know, people do say about Buffy St. Marie or the persona of Buffy St. Marie that she worked tireless, tirelessly for Indigenous communities and Indigenous issues, and she was a, a fearless warrior, etc. And, I, you know, that legacy certainly is out there as a public persona. Um, but over time, people will start unpacking that and investigating it a bit more. Um, you know, how tirelessly <laughs> was the work, and um, 
was was that was Buffy being or Beverly being compensated uh, for that work and in in how much and in what regard that sort of thing. Um, do you think it could have been used as an advantage? I mean, one of the, and again, this is one of the ironies of the, of the whole story of Buffy St. Marie is that very often indigenous people have not benefited from their heritage. There's a suggestion that in this case, because of her indigenousness, that she may have benefited. Do you believe that might be the case? Well, you know, it looks like early in, in Buffy's career, it, from different articles I've read, and I've read a lot in the last week or so, um, she needed her career had supposedly kind of stalled in her early twenties, and she needed a, some kind of shtick to reinvent herself or something. And you know, in those years, you know, the the sixties, you know, flower children, and you know, it was a wild time, and you could almost say anything. It was probably kind of cool and and the beginning of the time to be trendy, to say you're indigenous, and it certainly gave her some made her a bit more exotic, and seems like it, it gave her something. She didn't, a lot of people have said this, and I agree, she was a, she is an amazing musician, super talented, and her work as a musician is outstanding. She didn't really need um, to identify as an Indigenous person to, to have a phenomenal career that way, I don't think. Uh, but it seems like, um, and you know, I, like I say, people will look at this more closely now. I mean, she's still got her website up. And she has a couple of nonprofit um, organizations that she's had for a while now. And I think, and she's asked still, today I looked at her website and she's still asking for donations for those nonprofits, both in Canada and the United States. So it'll be And I didn't, but couldn't find anything a board of directors or a management process or any kind of mm. transparency in terms of financial management. So I don't know. And, you know, I'm a little bit cynical because I've, I've worked in the field of Indigenous education and Indigenous rights for a long time. And I have seen people, uh, non-Indigenous people, not through claiming a false identity, but in other ways, benefit from, from that. Yeah. Uh, we we got to run. I wish we had a lot more time. It's such a fascinating topic and, and so many questions about this. One more thing, though, that um, if you are adopted, if someone is adopted into a family... Generally, they would be considered to now be a full part of that family with all of the for what, how you want to describe it, all the privileges that someone who is now a member of that family would have. If you are a non-indigenous person adopted into a non, into an indigenous family, do you become indigenous then? Because you're now fully part of that family. It's a, it's a very complicated part of it, but can you claim to be indigenous if you're not, but you are taken in and brought as up as a child of an indigenous, of indigenous parents? Well, it's important to clarify that, um, Buffy St. Marie was adopted by the Piepot family in her twenties, in her early twenties, not as a baby. And she does admit that part. Um, she, she does confirm that. And so has the family. Um, but I heard a very wise Anishinaabe elder speak on this on her podcast. And she said, you know, that is a private matter between the Piapot family and Buffy St. Marie. And my experience is that that kind of traditional adoption, um, it really depends on the situation and how family, how far the family wants to take it. If they want to share, you know, their, their benefits that they get from their community, from their status, their they're standing in the community with her. They certainly are able to do that. But does it confer on her um, 
full membership in the First Nation? Maybe, maybe not. It depends on how far the family wants to carry that that adoption and how it's interpreted in, in each setting. It's it's confusing, and I think mm. it's put the Piepot family in a, in a bit of an awkward position. There, what they did was wonderful and and fabulous, and I can certainly understand why they did it. It's unfortunate now that it's getting the scrutiny that it is, uh, because it, it's a thing of beauty. That kind of love for somebody enough to adopt them like that is is just wonderful. Mm. And that will come clear with time. The the Piepot family may or may not speak out. Like I say, it's a private matter between them and Buffy St. Marie, and it should be respected as a private matter. But I would bet that, um, you know, if it means sharing the community's resources with somebody who's not originally from the community, and somebody who's not Indigenous and has other assets and wealth, I don't know. Mm. Uh, Daryl J. McLeod, his piece, I love Buffy St. Marie now, like many Indigenous people, I feel betrayed by her. You can read it at thespec.com or at the Star. Daryl, I appreciate you jumping on today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you very much. And I wish everybody well in their analysis of this and, you know, where they come down. And I wish everybody healing and strength and courage. Thanks for the time. Take care. You'll recall that during COVID, the restaurant industry was taking an absolute pounding. Understandably, nobody could go out to eat. And there was takeout and there was grab the stuff at the curb and all that kind of thing to try and help. Interesting ideas that were made up on the fly, really, to make things work. I mean... I went into Starbucks today. They're still doing the same thing where you can mobile order. That was a COVID thing where you, it was created for that. However, it would seem anyway, that not everything has gone back to normal because uh, apparently half of restaurants in this country either broke even or lost money last year. A third of all restaurants in Canada are now losing money. These don't sound like they are very happy days for the restaurant industry. Kelly Higginson is the CEO of Restaurants Canada, joins us now. Kelly, how are you today? I'm okay. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you coming on. And and when I was hearing this, reading this story, I had had been under the impression, obviously wrongly, that, you know, the industry had kind of found its footing again after COVID. Everybody was now going back. I know things are really expensive, but I sort Mm -hmm. of thought we were kind of getting back to a more normal. It doesn't sound like that at all. No, I mean, I think, you know, and that's the tough conversation. It's really complex. We've got two numbers that are very different narratives. So we've got a success story at top line sales of hitting $100 billion. So I think that's where everyone's going out. They see people, you know, restaurants are busy. Um, they've got a lineup at their local coffee shop. All those things kind of look like things have returned to that normal uh, but behind the scenes, uh, the bot that's none of that is being translated down to the bottom line because of extraordinary cost increases. And I'm not just talking about food, but that is a significant part of it. I mean, operators have often um, run close to costs. They don't often um, have this isn't an industry known for high profits at the best of times. So with that, when we had these really, really quick increases on our pricing of food, it certainly impacted the bottom line, but we've seen an increase across everything. I mean, we're talking about insurance going up anywhere from 15 to 30%. We're talking about, you know, all the operational supplies that go into to running a restaurant. So every single aspect of running a, a restaurant wages, we had a, a healthy increase over the last two years. So all of these things have impacted the bottom line. 
But we're primarily talking a lot about inflation. That's been the biggest impact. And I would assume that, you know, the fact that everybody right now is trying to find their pennies because everyone is being squeezed, mm-hmm. going out to eat as much as it's a great experience, that for a lot of people is one of the first things they can say, well, I don't have to go out to eat. I can eat at home. That, that would seem for a lot of people to be one of the first things they would drop. Yes. And that's the other thing that we've started to see. We've also had reports, as I think some people have started to hear about in the media throughout the summer, that there has been a slowdown of the on-premise dining and people going out to eat. And since we came out of the pandemic, we haven't fully recovered to those pre-pandemic numbers inside restaurants. And one of the pieces of that is that cultural shift to what I call the, the Netflix and delivery um, that that we all kind of survived on throughout the, the pandemic, it, it hasn't shifted for some people. So pre-pandemic, our full-service restaurants, their off-premise sales were about 10%. That has shot up to 30% of their sales. And with the off-premise sales, there's just, there's more costs associated with it. And there's less profitable items that are purchased Mm. usually online ordering. So with those two pieces, it's also become more expensive for operators. How many of the restaurants, and I wonder if this is one of the issues, how many of the restaurants because of COVID were already way in the hole as far as owing money and debt? And now it's, you know, they don't have the capacity to even bring their prices down to say, I can, you know, I get it that everything's expensive. I'm going to shave a little bit off here just to get people back in the restaurant because they owe so much money from what they were taking in during their losses. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic, they, they certainly did have bring in and starting to carry a lot of debt coming out of the pandemic. But if we look pre-pandemic, you know, right now we're talking about 51% of our operators are operating a loss or barely breaking even. Before the pandemic, that was 12%. Wow. So I do think there's a, a bit of a misnomer that this industry has always been kind of operating in that uh, insolvency zone. And that's just simply not the truth. But pre-pandemic, this was a very profitable industry. And obviously the pandemic, I think, you know, I I would say that this was definitely one of the hardest hit industries and it rocked a very fragile industry um, completely. And we are now carrying a lot of debt. That debt has higher interest rates coming onto it. So that's also a piece of it that has been challenging. And then ever since we opened the doors, we have been dealing with constant increases across the board. So what's going to happen? I mean, the, the, the natural guess would be, well, if a third of restaurants are losing money, a third of restaurants or a quarter, what number are going to close? Mm -hmm. Is that what we're staring at? We are nervous about the next year for sure. We've seen an increase in bankruptcies of 55% year over year. Um, And that was, that number was before the recent SEBA announcement. So we are very nervous about what the next year uh, will bring for the industry. That is, um, it, it has to be concerning, but we, we were talking, I can't remember who it was now. I wish I could remember. We were talking to a, a, an owner of a restaurant a little while ago here on the radio and they were saying, you know, most people don't realize the margins are not huge. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not living mm-hmm. on huge margins. You go to a restaurant and the dinner may cost you a hundred bucks, but 85 of that is cost and maybe 15 is what we're taking in as a profit. We're not, you're not getting gouged when you come out. If now even that is gone because people just can't afford to go, it is, boy, it's, I feel really worried for a lot of the restaurants out there. 
Yeah, we we are very concerned, and that that operator is absolutely right. I mean, the mid margins have always been 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 quite small for operators, and you know, one of the most glaring stats for us, and really shows the impact that this industry has on the communities that they're operating in, but also the economy, is more than ninety five cents of every dollar that's spent in a restaurant goes back out into the economy. So while they might be bringing in that five or ten percent off of your hundred dollar bill, they're reinvesting investing most of that back into their business, whether that's with their employees, whether that's with new equipment, whether that's paying for goods and supplies through suppliers. I mean, there's all these different ways that that they're reinvesting it back into their businesses. So, you know, these these are really important businesses in the country. We're a hundred billion dollar industry and the fourth private, the fourth largest private employer in the country. So, you know, we we matter and we are going to make an impact on the economy and to the communities that they're serving in. That is Kelly Higginson. She is the CEO of Restaurants Canada. Appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about this. Thanks. Thank you. I want to bring up a question that I've had for a while and I've never, well, I haven't heard anybody in official positions discuss it until now. Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin was being questioned yesterday about government spending. And he said that fiscal and monetary policy, so what he's trying to do and what the government is trying to do are rowing in opposite directions, making it harder to bring inflation down. This seems like it's been kind of obvious with the government putting so much money into the economy, but now the guy who's in charge of trying to wrestle inflation is saying the same thing. Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. He joins us now. Thank you for the time today. Hello. I, look, I, I am no economist. I don't pretend to be. I, almost everything I've learned about economics, I've learned by doing this radio show and talking to experts like you. But one of the things that has come up again and again is if you flood the market, the economy with money, everybody has more, there's fewer products that's going to make inflation grow. And yet the government keeps putting more and more money into the economy. I'm surprised Tiff Macklin hasn't said this long before now. He kind of did. Uh, I just don't know that it was necessarily picked up. But okay. I also think that the problem is not government comprehension of what Tiff Macklem is saying. It's what the Canadians understand of what Tiff Macklem is saying. And I, I think that that's where the disconnect comes in, is that politicians have to face voters. And I don't think that voters are particularly aware uh, of what's been going on. And so they've actually been asking for more government spending, not less. And that's where the government finds itself pinched between economic logic and the logic of the, the mass. Right. We don't want to spend as much on inflation, but we sure like the stuff that you give us. So keep it rolling. And, but those don't work too well when you're doing them together, obviously. Yeah. I mean, think about how we were behaving, you know, 12 months ago when in inflation was up around 8%. Uh, provinces were falling all over themselves to find uh, spending plans to help Canadians deal with rising prices. And in fact, that was the way that they were presenting it, right? We understand that you're suffering, here's 500 bucks. Uh, but the very act of giving people 500 bucks is inflationary. So what the governments should have been saying 12 months ago was that we have a perfect plan to help you deal with inflation. And that is not only are we not going to give you anything, we're actually <laughs> going to spend less. Uh, we're maybe not gonna try and balance the budget per se, uh, but we're going to spend less and you're going to get less goods and services out of us. And that's actually going to take some of the inflationary pressure out of the economy. And you'll thank us because interest rates won't have to rise as fast as much. Uh, but of course, if you say that to the average Canadian, 
they're going to be deeply offended that your solution for me struggling to make rent and to make grocery bills and to have money for basic needs is that you're going to give me less money. Uh, that costs you an election. Right. And that's why I was laughing because yeah, the, uh, there's not a politician on planet earth that is going to say that our, our, our answer here is to take away from you what you have. I mean, that, that, that is not a winning answer. So what is the winning answer? I mean, is this, does this have to be from all levels of government an educational campaign, almost more than a political campaign? Yeah. And it's, it's exactly the, the point that I try to raise with my own students, right? When they're, they're in their formative years that look, I'm not promoting any particular political agenda or ideology. It's a matter of this is just basic facts and this is basic, uh, you know, accounting. Uh, and so the sooner that you understand it, the more that politicians will be able to say, look, everybody in this room understands that right now at a period of high inflation, what you need is less spending from us. So we're going to give you less spending. Uh, I don't have to try and sell this with any sort of political rhetoric. So it, it is part of an education campaign. But uh, part of living in a democracy, though, is that where one party might come out and say, listen, it's obvious that what we need to do is spend less. If I'm the opposition leader, I would portray that party as being cold-hearted and insensitive and not caring about the average Canadian. And, uh, you know, I would make a big political hoo-ha out of this uh, to try and win some votes. And so that's where you end up with, uh, look, if we're not going to argue basic facts, if we're going to argue emotions and things like that, uh, you're always going to allow then for, for politics to trump economics. Is there a way out of this though? Because, you know, when we were in COVID and we had things like CERB, and I, I think most people to some degree or another, whether you are a fan of the governing liberals or not, I think most people realize that some sort of help for people was necessary and whether it was too much or just right or not enough, whatever the government, the, the market was flooded with money at that time. How do you get out of that then? How do you undo this when that's now become kind of, for some people, the norm? Well, I mean, a lot of it was taken out. Maybe they held on to it too long before they started to take it out. But a lot of that has been removed. The, the government's budget deficit went from 300 something billion to now in just the tens of billions, uh, which is much more reasonable and much more in line with what it's been in the past. So they, they did effectively take it out. But, uh, you know, again, I, I think it's a matter of uh, if you're going to have government spending, we're treating it all as if a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. And clearly, a dollar spent on, say, boosting the long-term capacity of the economy is very different than a dollar spent on today with no long-term benefit. The analogy that I'd give you is that if you want to take some of your life savings and go to Vegas, I'm sure you'll have a wonderful time. <laughs> but it doesn't produce anything long-term and long-lasting. But if you want to take some of your life savings and go and get a degree in economics rather than learning it through the radio – uh, that provides long-term benefits. So it's the same reduction in your savings, uh, but one provides long-term benefit, the other one doesn't. So you know the governments here at this point have to start saying, look, we understand that spending money is going to become increasingly challenging. So what we need to do is make sure that we're targeting areas that boost the long-run capacity of the economy. And at least if we're going to run a deficit, then we, we see the benefits for generations to come uh, rather than just handing you money right now it doesn't create that long-term benefit. I'm a little hurt that I don't have a degree or the equivalent from just doing this on the radio. I, I don't know, but I was, I thought I was getting close, but. Uh, <laughs> You've done extremely well. I'm just saying that in terms of the long-term no, benefit, you don't have to 
spend as many resources to, to uh, your point is tremendous one, knowledge. Your point is 100% taken for sure. It, it is it is such a complicated issue because as you say, and I, I like what you said right off the top, that this is something that you, it's not about the government having to hear this message as much as it is the people, although it's probably both, but yeah, you're, it's, it's a fantastic point and I think you're bang on. Uh, Moshe Launder, Senior Economics Lecturer with Concordia University. Thank you for doing this. Anytime. Why are we, why not have Halloween or trick or treating, whatever you want to call it, even if you don't want to call it Halloween, why not have it on a different day, maybe a month earlier, maybe always on a weekend? Why are we doing it in the middle of the week at a time when it very often is freezing cold for our kids? Corey Mintz is a Winnipeg-based food reporter and the author of the 20, uh, 2021 book, The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them and What Comes After. He wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail, Why Trick or Treat in the Cold? Canada Should Celebrate Halloween on a Different Date. Corey, how are you today? I'm great. Maybe a little cold. Thanks for having me, Scott. <laughs> what has been the response to this? Have you had many people saying, you know, thank goodness someone finally said it? Or have you had people, everyone saying, come on, it's a tradition. Suck it up. I've gotten a, a, a bit of both of those, a bit of the, yes, thank you. Why am I arguing with my child? Why am I cold uh, going out tonight? And I've gotten, I've gotten people invested in the idea that they suffered being cold on Halloween. So their children should be made to suffer, which is really just perpetuating <laughs> some of abuse, but they're entitled to their opinion. And, I, and I've got a third contingent of people who say, why stop at Halloween? Let's talk about moving Christmas, moving Hanukkah. Let's let's really like consider which pieces on the board can be moved around to more hospitable climates. Well, let's leave the Christmas one aside for a few moments only because I have a feeling that uh, we might be marched upon with pitchforks and torches if we suggest moving Christmas. However... You may be right. uh, But this one, okay, so I know that as a parent, I'll leave the kids aside for a second and I'm not going to go down the path of, well, I had to suffer so my kids should suffer. But I know as a parent, when I had to go out as a parent with my kids, the kids seemed just fine with the cold. I was not enjoying it as much as they were. Of course. I mean, look, if we take my daughter's testimony at face value, and I quote, I like being cold, Daddy, then <laughs> what's the problem, right? She doesn't need to do up her coat. Um, and as she argued with me this morning, she's four, by the way, uh, we were, were getting ready to go to school, and she's allowed to wear a costume in school today. And so she dressed up as a mermaid, and I told her she needed you know, some pants before we go up, because it is minus five, and there's about you know, half dozen inches of snow on the ground. I said, you're going to need to wear pants. She said, mermaids don't wear pants. So she's got me, right? Checkmate. Indeed. Indeed. I mean, I guess dad's not got the heart to come back with the answer about, well, you know, about the reality of the mermaid whole thing. I mean, that would kind of spoil the whole thing. You really, you can't really fight back in this case, can you? Well, or if only lean on the, the pragmatic reality of, yeah, I know you think you like being cold. You don't care, um, but you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to get cold. As soon as you get snow inside your feet, you're going to be very ouchy and not having a good time. Either way, I, I don't see my child as the opposition. She's just learning the days of the week and the months of the year. I could move her birthday halfway around the calendar. She wouldn't notice. So I, I don't think it's her who stands in opposition. I think it's Look, I don't want to make a strong man artic- uh, argument, but it's those fat cats in Ottawa, in Washington, who don't want us to move Halloween. What is their reason 
Big, it's, it's big Halloween. It's the big Halloween, you know, group that, uh, I, I do recall though, and maybe I'm just imagining this, but I thought that once or more than once Halloween was moved, not to like September or something like that. But I, do I not recall that it was put, it was going to be on a Sunday night or something and they moved it to a Friday or a Saturday because it made more sense. Am I wrong on that? I think they moved it to Wednesday once, but it was just to put it in storage for a couple of years. And they said, we got to let it cool down. Halloween's too hot. Uh, I, I think you're thinking of Seinfeld. Seinfeld moved from Thursdays to Wednesdays at some point, <laughs> but then it quite, you know, it quite successfully moved back to Thursdays. There's an, you know what? There's an even better argument. If they could move Seinfeld, Seinfeld, for those of you too young to remember, the number one program uh, on 1990 to 1998, if they could move Seinfeld, they can move Halloween. I, I think your points about, you know, Christmas and the other ho- holidays, you may get some opposition. Rightly so, those are all rooted in religious tradition. And while there is some religious tradition to Halloween, it's ancient Celtic tradition, which I, I, I don't want to disparage what may be a tiny, tiny minority that still exists, but I don't think it's like I don't think that's why anyone celebrates Halloween. It's a time for kids to dress up and go outside and go to people's houses in their neighborhood and collect candy. It's a fun thing we do to facilitate kids. And every other part of the culture of parenting and what we do around kids, we're always trying to see how can we make this more fun, more inclusive, easier for everybody. And it seems to me that the only reason we celebrate Halloween on Thanksgiving October 31st is because that's the way they do it in the States, but we celebrate a different Thanksgiving than they do. Yeah. I look, I, I, we don't care. Corey, I'm, I I love traditions and I'm, you know, sort of, I'm surprised I'm even saying this. Uh, I love traditions, but this one, as long as kids get candy, I don't, does it, I don't know that it really matters. Honestly. I mean, I, I'm kind of with you on the concept I don't know about the execution, but if kids get candy, are they going to complain if they got candy a month earlier? I doubt it. <laughs> if you gave my child candy, you got her vote, period. It doesn't matter when it is, what kind of, well, she maybe turned back some kinds of candy, but yes, kids want to get candy. That is their mission in life, getting candy. And if you can make it easier for them and parents, I think that's pretty win-win. Uh, the piece is called why trick or treat in the cold. Canada should celebrate Halloween on a different date. You can go look it up. It was from a couple days ago in the globe and mail, but it is still online. Corey Mintz, appreciate you taking time to talk about this today. Thanks. My pleasure. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's news. Today's talk 900 CHML. There have been amongst all the protests and amongst the parades and rallies and everything that's as a result of Israel and Hamas and everything else in there, there have been a number of things that have been said that have been over the top happens, you know, it happens. Uh, there was a a person in Vancouver the other day, I think she was a professor or something anyway, standing on the steps of a building in Vancouver saying that the Hamas attack was an amazing, brilliant offensive and was cheered on by the people there. And like some of the things that have been said are really beyond the pale. And a number of people have said, okay, but where is Canada? Like we have hate laws. Why are no hate laws seemingly being applied here? 
Well, let's ask that question. Why are we not seeing hate laws brought up in these cases? Michael Kemp is Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa joins us now. Michael, thank you for this today. Sure, always. This is, um, look, we, we have seen with other issues people charged or having a, a, a hate designation added to charges that they are facing for certain things that they've done, uh, sometimes related to the LGBTQ community or to the black community, whatever. And there have been a number of people saying, look, some of these things are so far beyond the pale. Where are the police here? Is it easy to file or to get a conviction for a hate charge? Is that part of the problem here that it's just going to be really difficult to prove any of this would be hate in the legal sense? So in, in a sense, yes, it is. It's never automatically the case if you say something hateful that you'll be you'll have a successful prosecution. Um, the issue really is uh, hate has to be uh, either uh, counseling hate, which is to say promoting it, or actually inciting hatred, which means that your hateful comments are likely to produce a, um, a disturbance to the peace. So if you just kind of quietly mumble something hateful, it's very unlikely that the courts would convict you in that case. The other thing, though, that we can't forget is if you break ordinary laws, like if you engage in mischief or intimidation, so mischief means preventing people from using uh, business property for its intended purposes, for example, and you attach to that a hate motive, it actually becomes a very serious crime. So blocking people for making use of either Jewish or Palestinian businesses, for example, would be a hate-boosted uh, form of criminal mischief. Okay, so, and, and I mean, they, they, these are nuances, and I understand that, you know, these are difficult, but we have seen, for example, someone would spray a swastika on a building, and that would be designated as something hateful under the law so that we could charge someone with a hate crime if we find out who they are. But if Correct, saying... because. Yes. But if saying something, that, and again, going back to this one example, there are others, but saying that what happened with the, the murders of all of these Israelis, these Jewish people in Israel was an amazing, brilliant offensive. Some would say, well, that's the verbal equivalent of spraying a swastika. So where's the, where would be the difference between those two things? So in those, the difference is that the swastika particularly is a specific reference to the Nazi regime, which has a connection to the Holocaust. So if you use a swastika, you are promoting the Holocaust, which is a criminal offense in the criminal code. If you are saying that your political position is you agree with the actions that Hamas took, uh, that is, for many people, a very offensive political position but you are not actively promoting or downplaying the Holocaust or genocide of the Jewish people. The logic would be in the law that we would prefer people to say these things out loud rather than keep them hidden so that they face public correction and backlash because speech is also regulated through uh, professional associations, uh, through society's reaction and so forth. So we don't want to go too far in criminalizing offensive political positions because then people keep them to themselves and these things can play out in acts of prejudice down the line. There has been a very commonly written thing on social media the last number of weeks, and I don't know if it's true, and that would be that promoting terrorism is 
uh, against the law. And I would assume there is something about that in our criminal code, but is carrying, for example, carrying a Hamas or ISIS flag enough to be considered promoting terrorism? So the exact criminal offense now is counseling terrorism, which means you have to go down somewhere and provide people with encouragement and instruction for how to go about engaging in a terrorist organization. So if I went down to a rally and I started collecting money from people or providing a, a link to which people could make donations to a terrorist organization such as Hamas, that's counseling terrorism. I'm providing an avenue for engagement. If I go down and I wave a Hamas flag, that's promoting terrorism. That's not a criminal offense in Canada. We did go down that road or try to in 2015 creating an offense of promoting terrorism. The reason we decided not to do it is it's a much more subjective term and we don't have a lot of experience with using the law in that way. So imagine a young person, 19 years old, doesn't know what a Hamas flag is, goes to a rally and waves a flag around for 10 minutes. They could be charged under promotion even though they didn't have that right. specific intent. Okay, It's for that reason that we've gone back to counseling Terrorism. All right. We only have, I wish we had a lot more time. It's such an interesting topic, but let me give one example because the, the, the swastika you've explained very clear. That's a very clear symbol. We have seen in this area, for example, a, uh, a crosswalk that was painted rainbow colors that where there were, someone squealed their tires over it. And it was determined this was intentional. It was an intentional act against the gay community and therefore charges related to hate were applied to that. Again, I'm trying to understand what the difference would be when there's not a clear promotion of an incitement or a description or an instruction on how to hurt somebody, why that would be different from something else that we're seeing these days. There has to be a difference that's determining what would lead to that charge or not lead to that charge. So the difference there is the first example of Hamas is terrorism. The second issue of directing a violent message to the LGBTQ community by using a vehicle to basically deface a sign, uh, the law really does not like it when we use vehicles as weapons. Okay. And that's where that charge would have come from. It is, uh, it's a very interesting one. There has been so many things, there have been so many things written on social media that uh, we wanted to have you on because that, you know, I, I don't know that too many of us actually understand what is or isn't hate, uh, quite honestly, and, uh, really appreciate you trying to, in a few minutes anyway, try to clarify what we're dealing with. Michael Kemp, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Thanks for doing this. Okay. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Don Robertson, owner of the Dundas Real McCoys, does a bunch of other things. Regularly is on my show most Monday nights when I'm doing my evening show here on CHML, but uh, not this week, but we thought we'd get him on anyway because, uh, welcome to the show, by the way, Don, thanks for doing this. You're welcome, Scott. So this, uh, this story, and look, I, I wish we could talk about something fun and lighthearted. It's the opposite of that. We all now know about this story of Adam Johnson, the player in England who died on the ice when his neck was slit was cut by a skate in the middle of a game. And I know you've seen the video of this and over the last couple of days, a number, many people, but where this story really to me starts getting some weird dynamic is there's a number of former NHL players. Sean Avery was on TV, says it looked like intentional contact. Not that the guy was trying to injure 
Adam Johnson, but that he was intentionally sticking out his leg. Chris Terrian says it looked intentional. Mark Mathot says it was incredibly reckless and an incredibly reckless attempt to disrupt Johnson's path to the middle of the ice. When you watch this video, do you see something that makes you go, what is going on? Or do you say, no, that, you know what, that looks just like a horrible accident. It was a horrible accident. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the young man lost his life. I mean, that's, that's, that's terrible. Terrific. Um, and he, he won't be the first player. Like I did watch it and then I saw it in slow motion. I mean, he was the fellow who skate, uh, cut Johnson was pursuing another guy and started going down and he won't be the first hockey player that thought I can probably, you know, impede this guy's process if I drag my leg and that's not an uncommon play in hockey. And I wouldn't say that I often would concur with Sean Avery, but first I would think based on what I saw, the back leg coming up was not a fluke. It was not unintentional. I think the consequences were unintentional. Clearly I can't. Yes. Yes, for sure. And nobody, he didn't uh, wake up, he didn't wake up that morning saying, I'm going to go, or even in that game, he didn't say, I'm going to stick my skate out and cut a guy's throat. There is zero chance of that in my mind. None. Zero. But there is a good chance that he tried to impede his progress. And that's not the first time that's happened in that type of a hockey play or other types of plays. You'll see a guy stick his back leg out and think, you know, I'm not going to get called for this because it looks unintentional. These guys are pretty good. Most of the things they do have a purpose, and very few things they do are just a fluke. Now, if, if somebody gets their feet kicked out from underneath them and they fly up and happen to catch a guy, his wrist or his throat or his back of his leg or anything, that's not, that's, that's you know, just a bad accident. There was, there was an, it, it appeared as if that he was trying to impede him which suggests to you that that part would, would be intentional. Again, <laughs> never hoping or thinking the outcome would be what it was. Well, and Don, that, that becomes the question here. Okay. So let, let's just say, let's say that he did stick out his leg to impede him. Uh, never in a million years, I don't believe would he have expected this would have been the outcome. There are like, every, what, what happened if we were to say then that as a result that he should face charges does this not open the door to say every time a guy in your league trips somebody, just a regular everyday run of the mill trip that we would see a million times in hockey leagues around the world every year. But the one time the guy goes down and hits his face on the ice and as a result dies that the person should be charged. Like is the, should you be charged for something where there is, I think, zero expectation of an outcome? I don't know. They, they did a bit of that in the seventies, Scott. Um, and it did Roy McMurtry, um, who was the attorney general at the time, laid some charges uh, with NHL players. Dino Cicerelli. Was it Dino? Okay. Yeah. So that generally doesn't get enough legs to go anywhere. Um, I forget the outcome of the Percuzzi. I don't know if charges were laid there. There was a civil case for sure. And um, some would argue that that was particularly premeditated. Um, but this, it's a, it's a slippery slope. If you, 
you watch a hockey game often, you'll see two guys racing in the corner for the puck and they'll both put their shoulders up to each other and try and, you know, gain, gain some real estate and hoping that they can dislodge the guy enough to get the puck. If you start laying charges for that and this guy went off balance, both of them trying to do the same thing, one guy losing badly and he crashes into the boards and, you know, cracks his head or breaks his neck, you know, I, the term hockey play has to be taken into consideration. In the instance I just described to you, I would call out a hockey play. This maybe doesn't fall quite as uniquely under the term hockey play because it was a bit different. Well, it was different. The results were catastrophic. So I don't know. And it would be the laws of, of England. I believe the game was played in Great Britain to see how they react to it. See, I, I look, I, when I watched it, Don, I, I, it was, it was a weird looking play. I, when I sent you the, the link to it yesterday and said, can you come on and talk about this? When I, I sent it, I said, I've never seen a play like this in hockey before. I've never seen a guy get his leg up there like that and do that. At the same time, uh, I, I, I just cannot believe that there was an intent to injure the person. There may have been an intent to do something within the, within the game, but boy, it concerns me that if we were to say, well, anything you do that is not exactly within the normal rules of the game that leads to an injury, you will be charged. We could be facing a ton of charges because stuff happens. People break legs. They break, unfortunately, break necks. They br- uh, stuff happens, unfortunately. Nope. Yep. You know what, Don, we got a terrible connection all of a sudden, so we're going to, uh, we're going to have to jump in. We got to go to the news anyway, but that was, uh, Don Robertson until it wasn't. <laughs> Appreciate Don jumping on here. Um, it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a hard one. It's a, this is not the same. All right. Some of you in this city may remember a number of years ago, probably fifth, well, more than 15 years ago, there was a Hamilton Bulldogs game where a player, Alexander Parajogan, remember this story? spun around and swung his stick like a baseball bat and hit another player in the face. All right. That was, and got suspended for a year and there was all kinds of other stuff. That was a situation where you're saying clearly you, if you didn't expect you were going to hurt someone, there is absolutely, if you had used any of your intelligence that you have as a human being, you would say the likelihood someone could or should be or will be hurt was there. This, I don't know. I, I truly don't know. And, and I wish the, well, I, I kind of wish, I kind of am glad it's not. I was going to say, I kind of wish the film was clearer. This video was clearer to be able to see what really happened. On the other hand, I'm kind of not, cause I really don't want to see what happened. But it just, boy, it's so many things happen that if we were to say we're basing a charge on the outcome, lots of things, lots of terrible, mean, illegal plays happen in all of sports where nobody is hurt. Does that mean then that that is less egregious than a lesser offense, a lesser action where someone does get hurt? You understand where I'm going with this? Like it's, if we're basing it on the intent, there's a lot of things that should be charged. But if we're basing it on the outcome, Who's going to want to play sports if there's a chance you could get charged because something you do could lead to a bad outcome? 
It's a really tricky one. Don't watch the video, by the way, if you haven't already, you don't need to. It's not going to enhance your life. It's just going to make you miserable. It's not good. Long history in this country of accepting and liking immigrants. We love that people have come over to this country and built this country. Many of us, most of us, somewhere in our past, there were immigrants. So I don't believe, and the poll numbers certainly don't suggest this, I don't believe Canadians have suddenly become intolerant of immigrants. However, there are new poll numbers that are suggesting that we are not as supportive of immigration as we once were. So what is going on? Why is that? Keith Newman is a senior associate with the Environ Enveronics Institute. He joins us now. Keith, how are you today? I'm fine, Scott. Thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate you doing this because this is, uh, and I've said this before, this is one of these stories that can get bogged down really quickly because mm -hmm. if we say Canadians are not as enthusiastic about immigration, the, I think the knee jerk reaction from some people is, oh, we've all become racist all of a sudden, but there are some really enormous issues that are being faced by our country that it seems in the polling being done, a lot of people are pointing at saying, no, I don't dislike immigrants. We just have no houses. We have a stretched medical system. We got problems that we just can't take forever numbers of people and still make these things work. Well, that's, uh, that's true. And I think there's a very critical distinction that we need to make. And I think it's something that emerged through the research, which we completed. Uh, we did our survey in September. And that is, uh, 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 people are start more than before, much more likely than a year ago, to start questioning the level of immigration or the number of people being welcomed into the country, which, as we know, uh, reached record levels in 2022. It was over a million people. So that's a lot of people for a country of this size. Right. Me. And, um, and, and that but, goes to some of those things though, to housing and medical and other yes, things that it's, correct. it's, well, well, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, and so we've been tracking this for four decades, the same survey question on an annual basis. And uh, there's never been complete agreement uh, that the number we're taking in is fine. There've always been some people who have uh, felt there were too many. Um, but that number became a minority over the past number of years. And over the past 12 months, there's been a significant shift uh, that the people who feel there's too much immigration, there are almost as many of them as the people that still disagree and say the levels are fine. So that is very significant. However, as you point out, and this is very important, it does not mean that people are more anti-immigrant. They're starting to look at the capacity to manage and absorb people as opposed to who they are and where they're coming from. We have questions on that as well, and uh, we're not seeing the same kind of change. There was a, a separate poll that was done by a group, and it, it, but it ties in with, with yours, uh, by a group called the Association for Canadian Studies in Metro, in Metro, Metropolis, Canada. Yes. And the reason I mentioned that one is because specifically, and yours may say the same thing, I'm not sure, but 57% of respondents in greater Toronto said there was too much immigration. I mentioned that only because that probably is the most diverse city in the world. So many immigrants already have settled there that if that city, this is not in rural parts of the country where you might say, oh, they're hicks. They don't want immigration. This is, this is the heart of immigration central that is saying, wait a second, we think there might be too many right now. Well, and it gets to the point about capacity because it is in, in cities like Toronto and Vancouver in particular, 
where a, a big proportion of immigrants and newcomers arrive. So it's, yes, they're <laughs> incredibly diverse. The, the city of Toronto or the greater Toronto area, 80% of the people living there are first or second generation. That's huge, okay? But it's not about the immigrants. It's about the capacity. And I think there's lots of evidence that cities like Toronto are struggling not only with housing, with transit, with traffic, with infrastructure. And I think people are looking at the record numbers of people being welcomed and saying, we're having a hard time keeping up with this as a, as a country and as community. So uh, it's really a, a question about capacity. And I think that is something that's new. I think in the past, when we uh, looked at the numbers uh, of people saying there's too much immigration, I think we considered that to mean they were anti-immigrant, perhaps racist, or just didn't like the kind of people. I think today that still is the case, but there are also people who are simply questioning the flow of people and wondering if we can keep up. There were images from, you can probably tell me better than I can remember, a couple of months ago at least, <clears throat> of a, a bunch of newcomers to the country who were on the street because there was no place for them to go. And I look at that and I also think, look, I'm, I'm going to give Canadians the benefit of the doubt here that I, I'm with you. I don't think that everyone has become racist. This is not comforting to us to think we are bringing people here, some of them, and then not being able to forget the people who are already here, that we're mm -hmm. bringing people here and then saying, we're setting you up to fail because we have nowhere for you to go. That is also disconcerting to Canadians, I believe. Uh, yes, I think, and that is, uh, can you hear me all right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I think that that is something new. I, I, the, the images and the, the events that you're describing, I think are really new in Canadian cities. Uh, this is happening in U.S. cities uh, as well. So this is by no means <laughs> unique to Canada. Um, but I think it really is a question of how many can we absorb? And, you know, this is in the context where we have a housing crisis we have a low consumer confidence in the economy, uh, and a lot of things are being stretched uh, in many in many dimensions. And I think people's own capacity in their own lives, and then they're looking at the institutions and infrastructure around them, and just wondering um, uh, if uh, if we can keep up. So you know, it's not as if everybody feels that way. Uh, uh, the the script has not flipped on this issue. But we've seen significant change in the past 12 months that suggests that something something new is emerging and really needs our attention. Do you think this becomes an election issue or do you think this gets, do you think the government looks at this now and says, I'm, I'm reading the tea leaves as it were with, you know, from you and other pollsters and, you know, people are just not on board with where we're going? Well, you know, it's a good question. We won't have a federal election anytime soon, but uh, a couple things. One, we know that there are differences in opinions between supporters of the major parties. Those who support the federal NDP and Green parties are the most supportive generally of both immigration levels uh, and and immigrant immigrants themselves, and those who support the Conservative Party are less so. So we already have a political divide, and that divide is growing somewhat. Um, and so that suggests that this could be a political issue. However, uh, if you want to form government, you need to get votes in cities. 
and cities are full of immigrants and newcomers and, and second generation. And so one has to be careful about how you're going to take on this issue. Uh, because if I think if you come across as anti-immigrant, uh, that's not a winning strategy and has not been a winning strategy for political parties in Canada over the past number of years, unlike in Europe. That is Keith Newman, Senior Associate with the Enveronics Institute. Really appreciate the time, Keith. Thank you for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. Have a good day. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Right now, from the 29th of October, so a couple days ago until the 4th of November, the Pan-Continental Curling Championships are taking place in Kelowna. And this is not necessarily the curling bond spiel that you are used to. Uh, some of the teams, very familiar, Canada, Japan, uh, United States, but some of them maybe less so. I don't know. Uh, do we see a lot of Australian curlers showing up or Guyana or New Zealand or Mexico? They're, they're there. They are there. Let's bring in Michael Houston. He's a feature writer for the World Curling Federation. He joins us now. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me on today. Uh, thank you for coming on. This is uh, the, the reason this is such a fun story. I came across this, and now maybe you saw the same thing. You may have written the story for all I know. Um, but last year, this event got all kinds of attention largely because of what happened with the Guyana team. Are you familiar with the story? Uh, yes. So I've done the follow-up as uh, as you've maybe alluded to the most recent story, but um, yes, Guyana made it to the to the A division this year of the Pan-Continental Curling Championships, and this competition only became a thing last year. Before, there was like a, it was kind of split into two different kind of groups. You had the Pacific Asia, which was um, like a, a proper regional competition, and then you had the Americas Challenge, which was effectively the US, Canada, uh, and one more team usually who were kind of on another level to to the big two. Um, this has been a fantastic addition to the World Curling Calendar, having the Pan-Continental Curling Championships. And Guyana's run to the run to um, the A division was quite staggering. I mean, if you look at uh, what the skip Ray Hussain was uh, telling me in, in my most recent article, he he had to kind of throw together the team at last <laughs> yes. minute because one of his uh, one of his one of his members of his rink had to unfortunately withdraw, and so what uh, Ray was doing instead was desperately looking on Instagram for just anyone <laughs> who, who had any kind of Guyanese heritage saying. You know, who wants to join our team? We're going to be at a, a major competition for the first time, uh, well, at least in, in four person curling. And um, and somehow he came across and, and found this guy. Um, his name's Kemraj uh, Gobardan. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And yeah, he became part of the, the Guyana team, which is now in the A division. Yeah. And, and the, the, I mean, the amazing part of the story is, so you're, you're right. He, he, he misses one of his rink members. They don't have any, uh, they don't have any depth in the team. So they don't have any extras. So he finds this guy on Instagram who says, yeah, but I've never actually curled before, <laughs> but he gets them on the team and they do really well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible because, um, the, 
if I, I can't remember off the top of my head now, but I believe they they were fourth or they were third in the um in the seeding. But basically, they they came into the semi-finals just hoping to get a get a decent result. Um, I think they were playing Hong Kong, uh, and Ray was telling me that he's good friends with Jason Chang, who's the Hong Kong skip. So he said that was a bit of a mixed emotions match where you know he's coming up against um coming up against one of his good friends and unfortunately knocking him out of the competition. Um, but on the other side, you know, all of a sudden he's he's into a final against India. He wins it. And from my understanding from what he was telling me in the context he was telling me, he said, you know, we didn't know what we were going to be doing next year, as in this year. He didn't know what we'd be doing in 2023. We didn't really think we'd be getting promoted. And all of a sudden they they play pretty well in the... Um, in the round robin and you know upset Hong Kong who I think would have been you know hoping to to get promotion and you know then just playing a blinder against India to to get them to get them into that uh into that top tier it, it does say something I, I think people who are fans of the game uh it's a I mean look it's a fun story it it reminds me a lot of and you probably remember this many people listening will it reminds me a lot of in 2000 the Olympics in Sydney when Eric the Eel was in the pool Eric the Eel Musambani from Equatorial Guinea or or even Eddie Edwards back in 88 in uh, in Calgary ski jumping or the Jamaican bobsled team these are great stories when they come along and they're a lot of fun, but it also has to say something about the fact that there even is a curling team coming out of Guyana or out of Mexico or out of some of these places. It has to say something that the sport is certainly not huge there, but at least getting a tiny, tiny foothold in the door. Well, this is what's interesting because what we found, not so much in the in Europe, um, which, although I say that as what I'm going to make my point is the Philippines team is a former Swiss team. They're all, um, they're all members of, uh, they're all Swiss citizens and I think all born there. But if we look at where most of the kind of minor nations are in world curling, most of the time they're kind of starting out in the US and Canada, particularly in Canada. So if you look at Guyana, uh, India, uh, top of my head, I think Jamaica as well. Jamaica's got a pretty solid team in the B division who are debuting this year and I think they're doing pretty well. I think better than they maybe thought they would, to be honest. So um, you know, there's teams like that and in Mexico they um this is an interesting one because they all started like they started to curl in the US. They're all in California, I believe. But they were all born in Mexico, which is a bit of an outlier when it comes to these teams because you occasionally have people who are born um in the in the country that they represent, for example, I, I believe the Jamaican skip. Uh, she was born in Jamaica but moved to Canada when she was really young. Uh, when if you look at the uh, the Guyana team, for example, what makes it so interesting is that they were all born uh, in Canada or the USA. Um, but what I find quite beautiful about their story is just how much of an underdog team they are. But what's still quite tragic is that. And it happens with all all teams, particularly in, in sports like curling, where you can lose a couple of guys because they retire uh, or they decide, you know, that they will, you know, they, they will take a break or something like that. And the team can just stop and they might not be a team after that. So I think what this competition will hopefully do for Guyana, regardless of the results, is just get people who even have some sort of heritage, even if they're not 
from the country itself. They don't live in the country, but they have, you know, say a Guyanese mother or father. Hopefully it will just get people thinking about, you know, mm. those guys that we could do it as well. You know, we could be at this major competition and be playing against some really good teams. So yeah, yeah Michael, I, think I, I think it's a massive positive at the moment. Sure. And Michael, as I say, I mean, look, after the Jamaican bobsled team, uh, appeared on the scene in, in Calgary, there's always been a Jamaican bobsled team. And you know what? Often very, very good. So who knows where this goes? Who knows if this becomes something and, um, you know, maybe as I say, little incremental steps into places where you wouldn't expect it to be. Uh, Michael Houston, feature writer for the World Curling Federation. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you as well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.